0: Good morning, everyone! What a joy it is to uh, sing the Lord's praise on this Lord's Day. We do want to thank the praise team and for ministering to us in song, and uh, just thank all of you for joining us this morning. And um, it's a joy to hear uh, from Elder Bob as well, and for I thank him for leading our church and for presiding for us. And um, just want to again express our appreciation to you, the members of Cornerstone, for your love for God's Word and your love for Christ. And uh, it's just expressed every weekend, every Sunday as you come and you sit under the Word of God and you come early for equipping class and, and desire to drink in all that the Lord has to say. And it's just a joy to uh, serve with you and to uh, be, uh, uh, seek to, to serve you with the Word of God every week. And it's my privilege to bring you the Word of God this morning. So if you have your Bibles, please open them to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 to 6. I'm excited about what I have to share with you this morning. I think it's impossible to read this passage without getting excited. This is a passage that deals with the glories of God and salvation, the riches of God's grace toward us in Christ, the wonders of what God has done for us in saving us from our sin. We've been looking at the doxology of Paul in verses 3 to 14. We've seen that this is one long run on sentence in the Greek that Paul opens his mouth to praise his God, and praise just spills forth and overflows from his heart. And we want to read together from Ephesians chapter 1 this morning, starting in verse 3. Paul says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. We are looking at the work of the Father in eternity past in verses 3 to 6. The work of the Father in eternity past. If you've been with us, you've seen that this doxology can be broken up into three different sections. The first section deals with the work of the Father. The second section in verses 7 to 12 deals with the work of the Son. And then the third section in verses 13 and 14 deal with the work of the Holy Spirit. So we are looking at the work of the Father in our salvation in verses 4 to 6. And we saw last week that the work of the Father is the work of sovereign election. It is the work of sovereign election. Paul says in verse 4, even as he chose us. He chose us, and that is the key phrase that is in this passage. The Father in eternity past made a sovereign selection of some to be saved. He chose us before the foundation of the world, uninfluenced by any foreseen merit he would see in us. He chose us because it was his sovereign good pleasure to do so. He chose us because it was an expression of his will. He chose us because it was an expression of his sovereign freedom to do as he pleases. And what Paul begins with in this oxology is this astounding truth. And the wonders of God's grace in eternity past, before even the creation of the universe or man, God sovereignly chose us that we would receive Salvation in Christ. Now this is a doctrine that is the foundation for our joy. This is the doctrine that is the foundation for our worship. Election is the origin. It is the foundation for every other blessing that we have received in the gospel. You can look at all the blessings that we have received in the gospel. The blessings of adoption. The blessings of forgiveness. The blessings of eternal life the blessings of our inheritance in heaven, the blessings of our relationship with our Father that we can cry out, Abba, Father, the blessings of our inheritance which is undefiled and unfading and will not pass away, reserved in heaven for us, the blessings of the Holy Spirit who has come to live in us and dwell in us. You could go on and on about all the blessings that we have received through the gospel of Jesus Christ and you can trace all those blessings back to their origin and their origin is the sovereign selection of some unto eternal life. The sovereign selection of you and I, that we should be believers in him. The Bible is very clear about the doctrine of election. This is not a doctrine that is difficult to understand. It is a doctrine at times which is difficult to accept. But in the scriptures, it is very clear, it is repeated, it is unmistakable. Jesus said in John 15, 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go bear fruit. Paul preached the gospel in the city of Antioch in Acts 13, 48, and it says that when Paul preached the gospel, as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. In Revelation 17, 8, we have this tremendous phrase where it talks about those whose names were written in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world. If you're a believer, your names were written in that book, and they were written before the creation of the world. In 1 Peter 1, verse 1, Paul calls the church the elect of God. You are the chosen ones before the foundation of the world. And Paul said in 2 Timothy 2, verse 10, that I endure everything for the sake of the elect. I endure everything so that those who have been chosen by God would receive the gospel and be saved. Jesus said in Matthew 22, verse 14, for many are called, but few are chosen. So the doctrine of election isn't something that's complicated or mystifying. It is a doctrine that is repeated and that is clear in scriptures. In fact, some of us might think that, well, election is uh, it's in the epistles, right? I mean, it's something that Paul developed or that Paul invented. But the case isn't true. If you look at the gospel records, you find that Jesus spoke about the doctrine of election. That Jesus spoke of the sovereignty of God and salvation, that there, was, there are some who have been chosen unto eternal life. In fact, Jesus referred so often to the doctrine of election that he wasn't afraid of speaking of this subject in front of unbelievers. You know, you might think, some of us might think that election, well, it's true, but it's sort of our little secret as a church. It's our dirty secret. We're kind of ashamed of talking about it in front of unbelievers. And we shouldn't talk about election in front of unbelievers because maybe the elect will be scared away from receiving Christ if they here the doctrine of election and we kind of think like we should just talk about it in our own holy huddles but in front of unbelievers we shouldn't mention the sovereignty of god that's not how jesus spoke of this doctrine listen to john chapter 6 verse 37 in front of many unbelievers who had come to hear him preach jesus said this all that the father gives me will come to me all that the Father gives me will come to me. Yes, Jesus said, come, everyone, and receive eternal life, and yet he says the only way you will come is if the Father grants it to happen. In John 6, Jesus was even clearer. He said, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And you might be saying, damn, well, that's like, You know, like your daughter talks to a cat, right? It's like, here, kitty, kitty, you're drawing. Draw the cat. The father kind of comes to the sinner and says, here, sinner, sinner, come receive the blessings of salvation. Let me entice you. And and Jesus is saying that unless the father entices the sinner, then he will not come. The word draw really there refers to a forcible gathering. In fact, in John chapter 21, it was used Describe the disciples forcibly dragging a net full of fish back to land against their will, against their resistance. The disciples drag these fish away from the away from water. And in Acts sixteen nineteen, it says that they seized Paul and Silas and they dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. Same word. What Jesus is saying in John 6, is that no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me drags him, forcibly hauls him in against his sinful will. And if the Father does not drag the sinner to Christ, the sinner will not come to Christ. Because in our sinful will, we are hostile toward Christ. And Jesus is saying this in front of unbelievers. He's saying, everyone come. But you're not going to come unless the Father hauls you in. And he's just speaking openly about the sovereignty of God in salvation. In Matthew 11, verse 28, Jesus gave us invitation. He said, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You See, well, see, Dan, that's an open invitation, right? Jesus is saying that everyone who comes will receive eternal life. And it's true. Jesus is saying, everyone, come to me. It's open. It's free. Anyone who comes will be saved and receive eternal life. And you don't forget to read the verse right before. Verse 27, right before giving this open invitation, Jesus said, No one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Election and open invitation went side by side in Scripture. And they run side by side in such a way that it's not just a doctrine for the church. It was a doctrine that Jesus proclaimed to the world. C.H. Spurgeon called election one of the doctrines he used in evangelism. He said it was one of the doctrines that he found most powerful for the sinner to receive Jesus Christ. The understanding that God was sovereign in salvation. So brothers and sisters, let us not be ashamed of the doctrine of election. Let us not be ashamed of the sovereignty of God and salvation. Let us not hide it away like it's some dirty little secret of the church. Let us be open and bold and proclaiming that God is sovereign in salvation and that salvation is of the Lord. And that all who come to Christ come because it is the Father who draws them. You know, if you, if you understand the doctrine of election, it will really give you a boldness and a freedom in evangelism. I, I share with you my struggles in evangelism. One of my struggles in evangelism is the guilt that I'm not doing it right. And you're kind of tongue-tied, and you're not quite sure what to say, and you don't know if you're this unbeliever, you're responding to him right, and maybe I'm being too harsh, or maybe I'm being too gentle, maybe I'm not saying the right words, or maybe I'm just inadequate, or maybe I'm just not loving him enough, or what? And, then, and you kind of walk away with a with sense of guilt that maybe I blew it. It's my fault. He didn't receive Christ because of me. If I just did a better job, then the sinner would come to Christ. And you just have this sense of frustration and it kind of, it kind of even when you go into opportunities to share the gospel, you kind of clench up because you feel that maybe, maybe it's not going to go well because I don't, I'm not doing it right. And the doctrine of election says to us, that, you know what, it's not your job to drag the sinner into Christ. Only the Father can bring the sinner and haul him in. It is your job as a believer to faithfully represent the gospel. And you can go into any situation knowing that if you give the gospel, then it is those who are appointed to eternal life who will believe. And it just frees you from just a sense of this burden and responsibility because that responsibility is not yours. Conversion is not your work, it is the work of the Holy Spirit. And so it just gives us a sense of freedom and of joy in any ministry opportunity. I was speaking to the servants this morning who minister in children's ministry, and some of you are here, you minister in children's ministry, and we, we desire that these children come to Christ. We are praying that these children come to Christ, and, and you do everything for the salvation of these children. That is why you are teaching. That is why you prepare. That is why you are there every Sunday. You're teaching them the Word of God because you desire that they come to believe in Christ. And let me just but let me just take a little bit of burden off your shoulders. That's not your responsibility, to bring them to Christ. That is the Father who will draw them in. And that is the Father who chooses and appoints to eternal life. Your job is to just faithfully minister the gospel to the best of your ability, and then you can leave it there. And you can go into those situations with freedom and with joy, just knowing that in the end it's not dependent upon you. You know, All of the elect will be saved. In the end, at the end of human history, God isn't going to look at me in heaven and say, you know, Dan, I chose some for the fo- before the foundation of the world to be saved, but man, they, they didn't make it because you blew it. And it's, it's your fault. You're going to carry that for the rest of eternity. No, you know, when we get to heaven, we're going to see that God chose some to be elect before the foundation of the world, and everyone made it. Everyone's there. It's it's a completed deal. It's done. And if you understand that, that not a single one of God's elect is going to fail to make it to their glorification, it just gives you a freedom and a joy in ministry that you can minister with joy and with, with, without the burden that it's all up to you because you understand that it's not up to you. It's up to God. All, no one can come to Christ unless the Father who sent Christ draws him. And what it also does is when sinners do come to Christ, is we give all the glory to God, don't we? We're not congratulating ourselves. We're not saying, well, it's because I packaged the gospel in this way. That's what was the power in their salvation. Because I was clever enough to put this take on this aspect of the gospel, and that's what reached their heart. No, it was because they were appointed to eternal life. That's why they believed. And so this doctrine is a doctrine we ought to celebrate. This doctrine is a doctrine we ought to believe in. We ought to be bold about it. We ought to exult in it, rejoice in it. We ought to not be ashamed of the doctrine of election, that it is God who chooses before the foundation of the world. Now last week we we answered some common objections to this doctrine. We answered questions such as, isn't that not fair? And we said that, Election, the fairness is God chooses no one for salvation. That God would choose some is an expression of His grace. We answered questions such as, "Doesn't election hinder evangelism?" We said that far be it from that. E- election is the only is the fuel for evangelism. Election is the only hope for evangelism. And if man is not there, are, if men are not elect, then no one will come to Christ. But this morning, I want to take you back to the text, back to the text of Scripture. And what I want to see in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 to 6, is three connections that Paul draws between the doctrine of election and the blessings of the gospel. I want to see in this text three connections that Paul draws between how God has chosen us before the foundation of the world and the blessings that we have received in our salvation. And the first connection I want us to see is in verse 4. It is the connection between election and holiness. Election and holiness. Paul says in verse 4, Even as he chose us before the foundation of the world, that, and here's the purpose clause, that we would be holy and blameless before him. Election has a purpose. It has a goal. It has an end. And the end is to make us holy and blameless. Now in our salvation, we have received three expressions of God's grace. We have received our justification, which is positional righteousness. We have received, we are receiving sanctification, which is practical righteousness. And one day we will receive glorification, which is perfection in righteousness. Justification, sanctification, Glorifications are the three expressions of God's grace and salvation in which he makes us to be holy and blameless in Christ. In justification, he declares us to be holy. In sanctification, he causes us to be holy. And in glorification, we receive the perfection of holiness where we are made to be in the likeness of Jesus Christ. I believe when Paul says that God has chosen us that we should be holy and blameless before Him. He does have all three aspects in mind. He does have justification, sanctification, and glorification in mind as He makes this statement the purpose of election. But I believe that as Paul says that gives the purpose of election, that He is really focused on that third aspect of salvation. He's really focused on the believer's future glorification. He's saying that God has chosen us in eternity past, that in eternity future, we would, in perfection, be made holy and blameless. Now, to get to our glorification, God justified us. And to get to glorification, God is sanctifying us. That is all part of the chain of salvation that stretches from eternity past to eternity future. But I believe that the main focus of this text is Paul has the end in mind. He has the end purpose in mind. He has the culmination of salvation in mind where God will glorify us in his presence and he will make us to be like Jesus Christ. Commentator Peter O'Brien writes, since the expression in verse four is dealing with a goal of election, it is likely that the day of the Lord Jesus is in view. God chose his people in Christ with the ultimate goal that they would be holy and blameless when they appear in his presence. If we understand what Paul is saying in verse four, then the perspective that he gives us in verse four is truly breathtaking, and it is truly dazzling. At the very outset of his doxology, in which he gives praise to God, he sweeps us all the way back to eternity past before the foundation of the world, and he shows us the origin of our salvation when God chose us to believe in Jesus Christ. And in the very same breath, Paul doesn't waste breath, having taken us to eternity past, he then sweeps us all the way into the eternity future and he shows us the climax and the culmination of God's eternal choice when we will be perfectly holy and blameless before him. Paul is showing us that we live in the middle of those two great events and we live in the confidence of our past election. And we live in the hope of our future glorification. And because we live in the perspective of those two great events, we have joy and we have confidence no matter what we are facing this day. I believe that one of Satan's great weapons to hinder the work of a Christian is is, is discouragement, is discouragement, And discouragement comes, brothers and sisters, when you are so focused on the circumstances that are right before you that you've lost perspective on what God is doing in in your life through his plan. And Paul is, is bringing us out. He is sweeping us upwards. He is causing us to look out of our circumstances, out of our trials, out of our present difficulties, and to see the vast eternal plan that God is unfolding for us. In time and in space, and showing us how it begins in eternity past and how it will reach culmination in eternity future. He chose us in Christ that we would be holy and blameless. The purpose of election is glorification. And one of the joys that I would want to just encourage you this morning, brothers and sisters, is that you and I, you may not, you may not, um, Fully understand this. You may doubt this truth, but believe it to be true because this is in the Word of God. You and I are on the path to our future glorification. One day we will be glorified. And if you can't see it right now because you're burdened with trials, if you can't see it right now because you're burdened with your sin, one of the reasons that we as Christians get discouraged is that we're so aware of our sins. We're so aware of our failures. We're so aware of the many times we fail in the same area time and time again, and we forget the purpose that God is working out in our lives, that he is conforming us into the likeness of Christ. I would encourage you this morning to dwell much on the future day of glorification. I would encourage you this morning to fix your hope on the future day when God will make you perfect in Christ. I would encourage you to view other Christians in light of their future day in glorification. I would encourage you husbands to view your wife in light of how God will one day glorify her. 1 John 3 verse 2 says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. What a blessed hope we have as believers in Christ. What a blessed hope we have of our future glorification. What will it be like, brothers and sisters, on that day, when you and I are made to be like Christ, when we will see him as he is face to face and be free not only from sin's penalty and sin's power, but be free from the actual presence of sin. What will it be like on that great day? And I believe on that great day, when we are glorified in his presence, we will trace back the experience of our glorification all the way back to its original point. And we will say that we are experiencing this blessing because in eternity past, God chose us that we should be holy And blameless before him. You say, Dan, how is it possible for a guilty sinner like me to one day be made holy and blameless? You say, Dan, I am aware of my sins. I am aware of my rebellion against God. How is it possible that a sinner like me would one day be glorified in Christ's presence? And Paul answers that question in verse 4, where he says, We have been chosen. In him. In him. That is in Christ. In what Jesus has accomplished for us. You see, in eternity past, before the creation of the world, God already knew that man would fall into sin. God is not the author of sin. God did not cause man to sin, but God knew that man would choose to sin. And God did not respond to the sin of Adam in Genesis chapter three. The plan of redemption was not a response to Adam's sin against him. No, in eternity past, God had already made the plan to save those who come from Adam's line and to redeem them through the blood of Christ. He had already determined the plan of salvation in eternity past, and that plan centered on the person and work of His Son, Jesus Christ. And get this. The part of the eternal plan in eternity past was not only that the Father would take the blessings that have been earned by the Son and place them on those whom He has chosen, but part of the plan in eternity past was that the Father would actually take the elect whom He has chosen and join them in inseparable union with his son. So that all of the blessings that the son has earned through his life and his death and his resurrection not only are given to the elect who place their faith in Christ, but they are the elect's blessing because they are one with the son. That's what Paul's referring to in verse four where he says, we have been chosen in him. That is in Christ. And that is why we as sinners can look forward to one day being glorified, perfect before God the Father. You know, it's just an amazing truth of the gospel, isn't it? That in order for sinful men like you and me to be made perfectly holy and blameless one day, The Holy One, the Son of God, needed to take our place. And that the Holy One, who was holy and blameless, needed to be treated like a sinner at the cross. Yet that was part of God's redeeming plan that he purposed in eternity past. And just a footnote to all this, brothers and sisters, we long for heaven. We... Have our affections in heaven. We know this world is not our home. We know that we're just passing through. We know our Savior is in heaven. Our heart is in heaven. Our home is in heaven. Our eternity is in heaven. Our inheritance is in heaven. Everything that that matters to us is in heaven. It's not here on earth. And one of the reasons why we long for heaven is because we know that heaven will be a place where there will be no more sin. It is not just that heaven will be a place without suffering. That is appealing to us, and that does entice us. It is not just that heaven is a place without sickness. That is so appealing to us as believers, but it is for us as Christians that heaven will be a place without sin. Heaven will be a place without iniquity. You and I will no longer sin when we get to our glorification. And we will get to our glorification because we have been chosen before the foundation of the world. So the first connection that is in this text is the connection between election and holiness. Election and holiness. Let me move to the second connection in this text. And that is the connection between election and adoption. Election and adoption. Verse 4, Paul says, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. And then note, there's no periods in the original Greek. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. I believe what Paul is doing here in verse five is he isn't so much introducing a whole nother subject. It isn't as if Paul is saying, well, you know, I talked about election and now election is done, it's in the past, let's move on from election and let's move on to adoption the lack of a break between verses 3 between verses 4 and 5 indicate to us that what Paul is doing is showing us the link between our present adoption and our election before the foundation of the world he is tracing our present experience of adoption back to its origin in eternity past you know it's been my privilege to speak to a number of parents who have walked through the process of adoption. And when you know parents who have walked through the process of adoption, they will tell you that the day of adoption is a joyous day. The day, the event of adoption is a joyous occasion. The day that family walks into the courtroom and the judge pronounces that child to be theirs, that, that is a, a day of celebration, a day of praise and Yet every single parent that you would talk to who has walked through that process will tell you that the event of the adoption was not the beginning. In fact, in some ways, the the day of adoption was the end. It was the culmination of a long process that went into the past. There were months, even in some cases years, of preparation planning of anticipation for that day when the child is declared to be theirs. And those parents will tell you that even before the day that the child was adopted, that they knew that child, they loved that child. They looked forward in in joy to the day when the child would be theirs. And that the process of adoption goes back into the past. What Paul is showing us in verse five is that the process of our adoption as children of God in Christ has an origin. It has a past. There were generations and generations of preparation, of anticipation, and that these origins go all the way back, not just to the days of Christ, not just to even the creation of the world, but all the way back before the foundation of the world when God chose us that we would be his children. Children. When I speak to parents who tell me of the process they've walked through, I walk away just amazed at their love for this child. I walk away just amazed at the beauty of their love, that they would love this child even before receiving the child into their home. And I believe that verse 5 would have a similar effect on our hearts. That we would walk away amazed by the love of our Father who not only adopted us at the moment of our conversion but who planned our adoption in eternity past. You know, last week I read the, uh, last month I read the bi- biography of Steve Jobs and it was fun walking through the history of Macintosh computers and iPods and iPhones and remembering, when, wow, the, the iPod was so new, it was so revolutionary. And just walking through the history of Apple computer, but my favorite part of that book was the first chapter, where Jobs' biographer described his adoption into a family. He was adopted at an early age by Paul and Clara Jobs, who were an average couple living in San Francisco, and Paul was a mechanic who restored old cars. And his biography writes that Steve knew from an early age that he was adopted He had a vivid memory of sitting on the lawn of his house when he was six or seven years old talking to the girl who lived across the street. So does that mean your real parents didn't want you? She said. Lightning bolts went off in my head. I remember running into the house crying and my parents said to me, no, you have to understand. They were very serious and looked me straight in the eye and they said, we specifically kicked you out. Both of my parents repeated it slowly for me and they put an emphasis on every word in that sentence. I believe there's an emphasis on every word in this sentence. Verse 5, in love he predestined us for adoption as sons. I believe that what God is saying to us in this text is that I specifically picked you out. Your adoption is not an accident. Your adoption is not random. It wasn't that God, the Father, rolled a, a pair of dice and eternity passed, and your number just came to happen to come up. And he said, Oh, what's the difference between this guy and that guy? I'll just choose this guy. No. It was that he specifically picked us out that we may be his beloved children. And just as for Steve Jobs, that was a transformative moment in his life. That was a moment when his insecurities and his doubts were removed and where he understood his security as a beloved child in the family. So with us as believers to understand the father's sovereign adoption of us is a transforming doctrine for our hearts and for our lives you will notice the phrase verse five he in love in love and that's the key in love he predestined us to adoption as sons you know first john 4 9 says we love him because he first loved us and i would ask you the question christian when did the father first love you When did the Father first love you? You say, oh, Dan, it was when I placed my faith in Christ. That is when the Father first loved you. And Paul says, no, you need to get way further than that. You might go further and say, well, Dan, it was when Jesus died on the cross. That is when the Father first loved me. And Paul says, no, you need to go even further back than that. When was it that the Father first loved you? It was before even the creation of the world. It was before even Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In eternity past, that is when the Father knew you. That is when the Father chose you. That is when the Father loved you. Dear brothers and sisters, don't be afraid of the doctrines of election and predestination. Don't view them as some cold, hard doctrine that are only for theologians and they have nothing to do with the blessings of the gospel. No. These doctrines are an expression of the Father's love. These doctrines are essential to understand the Father's love. It was in eternity past the Father first loved us, and because He loved us, He predestined us. Literally, He marked us out with a boundary, with a view to our future as adopted children. The word predestined means to foreordain or to place limitations upon someone for a certain future. And God in eternity past placed limitations upon you and I that we would receive in the future adoption in Christ. The hymn writer said, The love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell. And because God loved us in eternity past, our salvation is secure. Our salvation is secure. Brothers and sisters, I have good news for you this morning. If you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you cannot lose your salvation. You cannot lose your salvation. This is what the Word of God teaches Romans 8.29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. You cannot lose your salvation, and if you could lose your salvation, you would lose your salvation. If you are saved because of your choice of God, then you need to keep choosing God in order to stay saved, in order to maintain your salvation. But if you are saved because God chose you, and God is going to fulfill the purpose of that choice he made in eternity past, and he will bring you to glory before Jesus Christ. Because we cannot lose our salvation, we strive for sanctification, but we do so with joy. We strive for sanctification, but we do so with confidence. We do not labor for holiness with the insecurity that if we fail, then... Our salvation will be lost. But we do so understanding that it is God's sovereign purpose that whom he predestined, he will glorify. And all of this, Paul says, is an expression of his love. It's an expression of his love. First John 3, verse 1, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. You know, I think that if all God did in my salvation was that he saved me from hell and made me his slave, then that would be enough for me to give him praise for all of eternity and in heaven to come. You know, all of, if all God did was just forgive me of my sins and then take me to heaven and say, well, here's a, here's a job to do and here's a dish to make or here's dishes to clean and and that's all I did for eternity future. We would still sing Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound, that saved a wretch like me. Because he has saved us by his grace from the torments of hell. If that's all that God did, there would be enough grace for us to be amazed by what God has done. But the glorious truth of our salvation is God has not only made us his slaves. He has adopted us as sons. And the sisters, you might be saying, why does he say sons? Why doesn't he say he adopted us as sons and daughters? I mean, that doesn't seem fair. It seems kind of chauvinistic. Or why doesn't he use the generic children? He adopted us as children. I feel left out. Sisters, don't feel left out. Paul deliberately says we have been adopted as sons because in Roman society, it was the sons who had the right of inheritance. It was the sons who would receive all the riches of the Father and who had the legal right to receive all that the Father owned. And what Paul is saying that is that all believers, whether men or women, whether slave or free, whether Jew or Greek, all believers in Christ are sons. They are sons. And they have the right to receive the inheritance of the Father. You remember the story of the prodigal son where all he wanted to do was to be made a slave. He came to the father and he said, Father, I have sinned. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And to amazement, he heard the following words, bring the best robe, put a ring on his hand, bring the fattened calf, let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Paul says we have predestined to adoption as sons. Galatians 4, verse 6, God has sent the spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And would you notice what he goes on to say in verse 5? We have been adopted as sons of God through Jesus Christ. Through Jesus Christ. And that's key. That's key to understanding the greatness of salvation. You know, God had a son in eternity past. He had a son, a natural son, whom he loved and he cherished. God had a son whom he dwelt with in fellowship, eternity past before the creation of the world. And God determined before the foundation of the world a plan of salvation that was centered on his son. For children of wrath to be adopted into God's family. The real Son, the natural Son of God, had to be forsaken by the Father. On the cross, Jesus cried, Eloi, Eloi, Lama Sabachthani, meaning, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And it is through Jesus Christ that you and I have been predestined to adoption as sons. Paul says in verse 5 that all of this was according to the purpose of his will. Well, brothers and sisters, we should love God's will. We should cherish the will of God. Some of us view the will of God as some cold and personal idea that we grudgingly, reluctantly submit to in our lives. It was the will of the Father to choose us for salvation. It was the will of the Father to predestine us for glory. It was the will of the Father to adopt us as his children. And Isaiah 53 verse 10 says, it was the will of the Lord to crush his son. Well, brothers and sisters, we should love the will of God. We should cherish the will of God and joyfully submit to it. So the first connection is the connection between election and holiness. The second connection is the connection between election and adoption. And the third connection that we find in this passage, is the connection between election and praise. Election and praise. Verse 5, Paul says, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. And then He gives the ultimate purpose of our salvation. This is to the praise of His glorious grace or as the NASB puts it, to the praise of the glory of his grace. God's glory is the manifestation of his attributes. In the Old Testament, God would put certain attributes of his character on display so that men would see him and that they would worship him. His glory, in some ways, is God showing off who he is and his glorious character. The amazing truth of this verse is that God could have chosen many different attributes to put on display. God could have shown us the glory of his omniscience. He could have shown us the glory of his omnipotence. He could have shown us the glory of his justice. He could have shown us the glory of his wrath. For some reason that I cannot humanly explain, purely according to his sovereign will, God chose to put on display the glory of one very specific attribute in our lives, and that is the attribute of his grace. He wanted to put his grace on display to show how high and how wide and how long and how deep his grace really is in his character and in order to show how great his grace is, he had to find some truly unworthy objects of that grace. And that is why, brothers and sisters, you and I were chosen. It was not because we had anything to offer, it is precisely because we had nothing to offer. It was precisely because. And God shows us he had truly unworthy candidates for his favor and he could show how amazing and how deep his grace really is that such wicked sinners would receive salvation. And the end result of God putting the glory of his grace on display is praise. It is praise. Verse 6, it is to the praise of his glorious grace. That is the ultimate purpose to which we have been called. John Piper writes that missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exist because worship does not. Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. When the age is over and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. It is a temporary necessity, but worship abides forever. And worship will abide forever because we have been saved to the glory, to the praise of the glory of his grace. Brothers and sisters, let us not wait until heaven before we start fulfilling the purpose to which we have been called. Let us begin today to give God praise, to give God praise for the glory of his grace, the glory of election, the glory of predestination, the glory of adoption. Let us praise him. Let's bow in prayer together and thank the Lord for this time. Father, we give you praise this morning for the glory of your grace, which is revealed in these precious doctrines that we have just studied. The doctrine of election, the doctrine of predestination, the doctrine of adoption, these are expressions of your love toward us. Father, what can we say but to stand amazed, to stand speechless before the grace of God and salvation to say, Lord, that we want to bless you to bless the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. and We want our hearts to be spilling over like Paul's, overflowing with praise and adoration for who you are and what you have done. Lord, thank you for Christ. Thank you for sending your Son. Thank you for his work on the cross. Thank you for his resurrection from the grave. Father, we will never cease to give him praise for all that he has accomplished thank you and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.